So Money episode 1176, Abby Fallick, social entrepreneur and founder of Global Citizen Year. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I think in the next five years, we will see half of colleges and universities not make it through this COVID shock. Yeah, at least. I mean, I really think outside of a very small set of certainly, you know, big public state schools that provide excellent value for money or a very tiny slice of really well endowed schools where you get a fancy and very valuable credential. I think everybody else is going to struggle. Are we rushing our kids off to college too quickly? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We are discussing the benefits of taking a gap year between high school and college, something that was once a bit of a taboo, increasingly becoming a norm. And our guest today is a big advocate of this. Abby Fallick is the founder and CEO of Global Citizen Year. She is an award-winning social entrepreneur and an expert on the changing landscape of education. Abby is a frequent speaker and writer. Her work has been featured in prominent forums and outlets, including the Aspen Ideas Festival, the Fast Company Innovation Festival, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NPR. Abby and I discuss the mission behind Global Citizen Year, how the program unlocks curiosity, conviction, and courage in our next generation leaders. Also, Abby's take on the future of college and why she strongly believes there will be fewer institutions standing and why that's a good thing. Here's Abby Fallick. Abby Fallick, welcome to So Money. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Can I just say, I'm so happy that I learned, I just learned about Global Citizen Year. Maybe it's because I'm not your target audience, but I think it's such a great mission, this initiative, this this program that you've put together, especially given the times that we are living in with a lot of us at crossroads, young people, especially feeling like, uh, you know, is this it? This is, this is my adult life. Like I'm going to be, end- they're inheriting such a mess. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Sorry, 18 year olds. But you have through Global Citizen Year really created this alternative experience for young people that I would really love to just start off talking about that and what it is and, and what we should know about it. Terrific. Well, it feels even more relevant now than when I first cooked it up. And in many ways, this has been my life's work. So I, finished high school, just burnt out. I was exhausted from the treadmill. I checked the boxes. I'd been a good student. I'd gotten myself into Stanford. And it was like, that was the gold ring. And yet I had this deep sense that there was more to the world than shuttling myself from school to more school just because it had been expected of me. And I desperately wanted to step out of my comfort zone and out of my life and other people's expectations for me to have an experience that was going to be formative and give me a sense of why I was going to college in the first place. And, you know, really ever since then, and I I wasn't able to find an opportunity like Global Citizen Year, I have been fixated on the opportunity and the missed opportunity to catch young people on the cusp of adulthood when everything is still in formation, like you haven't fixed your values and identity yet. And yet we, we miss the moment 
to give young people a sense of who they are and who they want to become. Um, and so I've been on this journey now for about two decades, the last decade of which we've actually been running the organization. We're a not-for-profit based in uh, the Bay Area. And the mission is to launch a generation of leaders who have curiosity, conviction, and courage. And we do it by reimagining the transition between childhood and and adulthood, or and specifically the, the transition between high school and college by way of what we call a global citizen year. Who is best to do this? I know so many families feel the pain of sending off their kids to college, quote unquote, too soon, the kids themselves not ready, but feeling like the pressure of not following the norm is too great. And this idea of a gap year is only now becoming more and more accepted and understood. Thank you, Michelle Obama and the yeah. Obamas for, <laughs> for yeah, forging, no, for making it seem okay. But no. I remember being in, I remember being in high school and, you know, obviously talking to your friends as you approach graduation, like, where are you going off to school? And the kids that weren't decided or hadn't accepted a college yet, it was deemed a failure. Yeah. And so one, how can families reframe this and think about this in a little bit more of a of a normal way? How can we normalize this? And and then tell us about how you actually do help your young adults earn that curiosity, conviction, courage. So I experienced that sort of pressure and inertia coming out of high school. And I, I now know to call it FOMO, right? The fear of missing out when I felt like everybody else was going off to college. And in many ways, we're on a mission to flip the script so that the FOMO is felt if you do go straight to school. Like, why would you ever do that before you know why you're there and how best to take advantage of the opportunity? Um, and so you asked, you know, who is this best for? I have become totally convinced that a year of lived real world experience to break up the schooling is good for everyone, full stop. Um, most kids haven't had an opportunity to try things in the real world, to experiment, to fail, to rebound, to have experiences that that shape your sense of um, of. of purpose that then inform how you can make the most of the investment that somebody is making in your college experience. So how it works for us um, is that we recruit and select really exceptional young people. So we're looking for kids who are go-getters. They're also in many ways do-gooders. They believe the world can get better. And we offer them an opportunity to find their crew, to find their people, other young people like them from around the world coming out of high school. And then we give them the experience of a year-long, school year-long immersive experience living and working alongside the global majority in communities in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And there's a curriculum and a coach and ongoing training. They've got a cohort of students. They're not there as development workers or to do service. They're there as learners. We call it an apprenticeship. So they live with a family and then they're working to ad advance efforts in education, health, the environment. And, and the experience shapes a sense of how huge the world is, how unequally resources are distributed, but also builds a sense of agency and resilience um, that become foundational to everything you do next. 
So that's that's the traditional fellowship that we've run for the last 10 years. In the time of COVID, obviously, we can't send young people around the world in a global pandemic. No. So we've launched a whole a whole new model uh, that's called Global Citizen Year Academy. And it is our training and curriculum and approach to leadership development delivered virtually. And we've had kids from 50 countries around the world enrolled in our fall semester, and we're gearing up to launch the spring as well. But it's similarly, it's the same, same mission. How do we help young people at this crucial transition really make the most of it. This transition can be a transformation when it's done mm-hmm. by design and not by default. Yes. And I read that this is something that college admissions boards love. Like mm-hmm. this is th- that they're, if you're concerned about the gap year and how that's going to look or how it will present to college decision makers, this is actually a real benefit to many to many applicants. And I think that's been one of the greatest fears that families have is, is this going to get me off track? Does this look Mm -hmm. bad to colleges? And that narrative is changing so fast. I mean, Harvard uh, has the, the admissions dean at Harvard has this sort of seminal piece he wrote saying he wishes that every one of their incoming students would take a year like this. Um, We've forged partnerships with a dozen or more colleges and universities from Duke and UNC to uh, Middlebury and Stanford, where the admissions offices are excited to promote this to their incoming students because they recognize how hard everyone's been running at this singular goal of getting to college and how much better prepared kids are, how much more refreshed they are. But Mm -hmm. they've had an opportunity to step back and, and consider or how they want to approach the experience on arrival. So we've got relationships where schools give joint admissions, financial aid, course credit, and that's something we're really focused on on building out because it's such a key part of changing the narrative among families and students is normalizing it in a way that shows that the, the colleges appreciate and encourage it. They even look favorably on it and not the opposite. At what point in your high school years do you apply for global citizen year? Do you do it after you've been accepted to a college and can get permission to defer for a year? Do you do it before you apply? Like, what do you recommend for families? So we have a number of different admissions deadlines starting in the spring of someone's junior year of high school on purpose. So there are kids who are ready at that point to say, you know what, I am not even going to participate in this rat race along the same timeline as everybody else. And I know I need a year to figure out all of these things for myself. Um, So kids can apply. That's early, early admission. Um, And then we've got admissions deadlines that map to the college admissions process. So we've got kids who apply to us before they've applied to college, some of whom then don't apply to college during their senior year. And they they spend a year with us and they apply to college while they're with us, which we think can be a great outcome because it means that kids are more purposeful about the schools that they're choosing and, and why they're choosing to attend. And then we've got a bunch of kids each year who apply in the spring of their senior year. So they have heard back from college, they've secured a spot, and they then feel like, oh my God, I can let my shoulders down finally and like breathe a sigh of relief and think in more creative ways about what I really want next. And across the board, schools are delighted to grant a deferral. Almost always, they will defer that financial aid. And in many cases, we've seen schools that throw additional merit-based aid awards at at students after they have an experience with us just because they're such valuable candidates. Um, So we've really made it flexible to recognize that kids are making decisions along a a broad, broad timeline. 
Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how, if and how money comes up in some of the learnings and conversations in this Global Citizen Year program and the the academy even. I don't know, just wondering if you are preparing these young adults for the real world, what are the conversations about money that you might be having or richness or wealth or power, all that stuff? Oh, so much. I mean, in many ways, it's very central to everything. Well, anyone does, but certainly very central to what we do in across a couple dimensions. So one is that we have a need blind admissions process. And I spend most of my money, my, most of my time, not my money, but most of my time uh, raising money from philanthropists who are underwriting scholarships. So we've raised and deployed $30 million in financial aid um, from the support of generous donors. And then that has ensured that in our first decade, 80% of our kids have participated on some level of need-based financial aid. About almost half of our, our cohort of alum uh, received a full scholarship in order to join us. And at the same time, we've got kids who've grown up in financial comfort and privilege, and, and we're bringing them all together from across a range of socioeconomic backgrounds. And that is one of our approaches to preparing the leaders the world needs now, is by getting kids to connect across lines of difference. And, and we do this across geographic lines and political lines and, and racial lines, but also across economic lines, which is something that doesn't happen very often in this country. And so it, it can't not be a conversation. The, the very different starting points of different kids' lives, you know, if somebody who grew up in Palo Alto, someone who grew up in East Palo Alto, just across the freeway and um, had wildly different access to opportunities and senses of what was available to them and open to them. And, and I think one of the most powerful things we're able to do is broaden young people's perspectives to other lived experiences. And then the other dimension of this, obviously, is that we are placing our fellows in often materially poor communities around the world. We, we are deliberate about placing them with what we call, you know, global majority families and, and, and communities um, where, again, they can't not see the ways in which money is life, money is comfort, money is safety and security and power. And independent of where one of our fellows started on the sort of um, financial security spectrum, they're having direct exposure to another family that typically is um, closer to just the survival line. Um, and that provokes all kinds of thinking and conversation that we often guide um, and reflection about what does wealth and money mean? What does it give us? And what's its relationship to well-being and happiness, um, which I think is really provocative as well. Any anecdotes worth sharing? Any, any brave souls in the group raising her hand saying, here's what I think about what money means or, or you know, any revelations? I think it's so, this is, you're, you're capturing such a, a beautiful time in a, in a person's life where they are really impressionable, but also really thoughtful and, and intuitive. And I just wonder what, if you have any, um, maybe I'm putting you on the spot. No, but I, no, it's fine. I mean, I think about this all the time and we've got, we now have a thousand alum um, and I could identify any of them who've had a provocative or really meaningful reframe on their notion of, I would say money, but it's really about poverty. And I would say on the other side of the spectrum, you've got kids who grew up in, in very wealthy families and communities who have an experience of how, um, you know, their host community in Brazil that may not have much in terms of money might have more um, time for each other, more yes. connection and community, and um, that it really can shake up your sense of what you aspire 
aspire to in your own life? Is your goal to make as much money as your parents did? Or is your goal to find ways to support your family? Certainly, but to to be happy and focused on the things you care most about. And I don't mean to say that those things aren't but sort of, they are linked, but one does not. You don't need money to get those fields. Right. So that's, I think that's, those are profound learnings for a lot of our fellows. And I just learned that in the last decade myself as an adult woman. I mean, I just wrote a piece about how this podcast has brought in my, or more, more not brought in, but also reaffirmed some of the things that I always thought were true. But now having interviewed so many people like you and hearing the story, it just really does reinforce one of the things, which is that being rich is not just about having money. I recently wrote about that. And so many guests have attested to this and that it's, to your point, it's about having time, access to resources, strong relationships, health, and that when you have the combination of those things and of course, some money, you can go so far in life. Even if you don't have money, but you have all the other stuff, puts things in perspective, right? Like we, you're right. You go outside this country and you realize what equates to wealth here is not what equates to wealth in other countries. And you probably have more than you thought. That's really important to recognize that earlier in your life. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, again, I spend a lot of my time fundraising and it's very apparent to me. And I think it also is to our fellows and alums that, I mean, it's so cliche, but that money doesn't buy happiness, that you can have people who've gunned at like being the top earner, um, but they may not feel satisfied or whole or happy or grounded and that there were other trade-offs that they've made along the way um, that might actually lead to regrets later in their life. And all the data shows that there's a certain sort of baseline amount of money in different contexts and cultures that people need to make in order to make sure their basic needs are met. Um, And that beyond that, incremental earning doesn't necessarily contribute to incremental happiness. Um, And I just, I think that's such an important lesson for young people to learn as they're setting out that there are ways they can make decisions about what to study in college, what first jobs to take, what careers to pursue, where money is one dimension of the decision-making, but it's not the only one. Mm. What is the future of education, if I may pick your brain, since this is something that you speak on often and you have such a a wealth of experience and perspective on this? But I mean, I just interviewed Ron Lieber, who is the New York Times, right? He's the New York Times financial editor, and he wrote a book about college admissions and how to prepare. And we talked a little bit about the future of college. I, I wanted to know, frankly, like are schools, are some schools going to drop off the place of the earth? Because I feel like some schools just don't deserve our money. What are your predictions as far as maybe how we learn and what college is really going to mean in, in the future? There's a lot of debate over whether it's even worth it. What are your thoughts? So, and Ron, Ron is a good friend. Um, and I think there's actually a chapter in the book about the value of what has been often called a gap year. I, I hate the language. I sort of put air quotes around it because the the metaphor is terrible, right? The idea that you're falling into a gap or that it's the absence of learning as opposed to what it really can be, which is the presence of the most formative learning and experience and, and the inputs that then help you arrive in college ready to make that investment pay off, right? The best way to improve the ROI of the college investment, I think, is to make sure that you don't send a kid to a freshman year before they know how they want to navigate 
the experience mm-hmm. they've got, you know, the confidence and focus that allows them to make the most of it. So, so Ron and I are aligned on, on that. I tend to have a pretty bold view, maybe radical is the word, on what comes next. I, you know, for years have sensed that we're on the cusp of a massive disruption in the higher ed landscape. And COVID, like with so much else, has revealed, you know, where some people say the, the, uh, the, where the emperor has no clothes or it's really forced families to confront whether it's worth it. And you've got college enrollment down 20% in the fall of 2020 and predictions that that will actually, that number was not specific to 2020, but that trend will likely continue as people look at schools and say, is this really worth it? Are the things that you're going to teach my kid or that I could teach and learn in a classroom, the most cost-effective and the most impactful set of things that I need to learn next in order to get a job and lead a thriving, fulfilling life. I think in the next five years, we will see half of colleges and universities not make it through this COVID shock. Yeah, at least. I mean, I really think outside of a very small set of certainly, you know, big public state schools that provide excellent value for money or a very tiny slice of really well endowed schools where you get a fancy and very valuable credential. I think everybody else is going to struggle, actually, uh, to 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 demonstrate that it's worth it, that it's worth the time and the cost. And then in its wake will be the emergence of all kinds of new pathways. And this I find very exciting. I think it's good for social mobility. I think it's good for helping young people learn the things they most need to learn that set them up to be successful. Um, uh, that And really unbundling teaching and learning from a four-year campus college experience with the kind of price tag of, you know, quarter million dollars, there can be so many alternative ways to learn what you need to learn in order to become an adult. Um, and I think it's good for the world. I think we just have to be really cautious that we don't uh, reduce education to job training alone. So you watch as companies, you know, Google's got a set of certificates or, or certificate programs, online learning uh, that you can do that bundled together, Google says, we will look at these as equivalent to a four-year college degree, um, which is super exciting that you could take these free online courses and ready yourself for a great job at Google, but it's also missing a lot of what we all need to embrace and value in a, in a higher education. How are we teaching empathy and creativity and curiosity and innovation? Um, and so that's, that's the role I'm hoping that we can play at Global Citizen Year is introducing a pathway that's part of the solution, but that speaks to a set of things that have been called, quote, soft skills, but are actually the power skills. I like that. I like that future, I think, because rules are meant to be broken. I mean, we have been so on autopilot with this idea of college that you just do it. You have to go. You have to pay the price because that is ultimately what gets you the job, which equals success. And I think that's a very limiting way to proceed with your life, especially knowing, too, that it's so expensive for so many families and it feels forced for some families that like, I have to do it. I don't have the money, but I have to do it. Or maybe I'm not even sure if this is the right move, but I guess I don't know what else to do because culturally nothing else is acceptable. Exactly. So I like that we can look, we can hope for a world and we're working towards a world where there's more optionality for, for students, for learners, really for learners, right? Let's just call them 
learners. And credible um, and viable options too. I realize it can mm-hmm. sound tone deaf when I say, well, you know, a lot of kids are not going to go to college anymore because there's been so much emphasis as there's needed to be on really equalizing access and opportunity. And it's absolutely the case that today kids who uh, from low income backgrounds get a four-year degree are you know wildly advantaged for the rest of their lives. But what's giving me hope is that that narrative and reality will change quickly and there will be new and more efficient and impactful pathways for, for kids from across the full economic spectrum. Mm-hmm. Abby, tell me a little bit about yourself and when you realized that this was, that becoming a social entrepreneur was your pathway. Was this something that you saw from the get-go and worked towards building? Because I don't think there's really, maybe now there are a lot of courses and programs and pathways, but I feel like you may have paved a way for a lot of people. And and how did you recognize that this was something that was, that was your path? I had really early instincts as an entrepreneur. So I remember selling my dad's neckties door to door. And I started a summer camp when I was 12 for kids in the neighborhood. So I was kind of, I was focused on money and efficient ways to earn it beyond just babysitting, which felt relatively inefficient. Um, But very early on, and I credit my parents with this in so many ways, there was just a sense of social responsibility. I grew up in Berkeley, California, um, in a sort of liberal Jewish family where my parents had um, surpassed their parents' expectations and earning to be able to then raise us in a context where we had everything we needed and plenty of money and um with that, we were taught came responsibility. Um, so we had early experiences as kids. I've got two younger siblings traveling around the world with them and, and having experiences that really kind of oriented me toward what we do at Global Citizen Year, that by seeing the rest of the world, it puts our own experience in a broader context in a way that you can't unsee and you can't unfeel. I remember visiting schools in Indonesia and having a sense of like, oh, my God, this kid is also 10 years old um, and has widely different life opportunities as a result of just the randomness of where and when somebody was born. So I have a mentor who describes it as a social justice nerve that we all have. And the idea that once it's exposed, you can't ignore it. And so I would say that it was exposed very early for me. And then this intersection between a very entrepreneurial instinct and a commitment to social justice and equity um, just guided every decision I made from a young age. Um, So it's felt very natural. I feel like I've made decisions that I couldn't not make. It's I've just been on a on a path that has unfolded, and I feel wildly grateful for that because I realize it's not common. Um, but I do hope that I can inspire other young people who are ambitious, hard driving go getters um, to make social impact and not just personal gain or profit. Their bottom line. It's amazing. I mean, as you were talking, I'm writing down a list of countries that I've never been to that I would love to send my, like visit with my kids. Like imagine being 10 and being in Indonesia. I have not even been to Indonesia. I'm 41 years old. (laughs) What a gift your parents gave your family. That's, and but you know, for everyone listening, you don't have to travel 6,000 miles to give that experience to your kids. You can go to the town next door. A lot of our neighboring towns, we're just surrounded by various socioeconomic factors and families. And I think that there's always an opportunity to broaden your family's perspective and, and especially when you're a kid to see how others live. 
What would you say is your money philosophy if you had one? It is abundant. And I realize mm-hmm. I say that from a place of enormous privilege because I grew up in a context where it was, which is, you know, also what created enough of a safety net for me to take a bunch of wild leaps toward starting a, you know, a nonprofit without any clue of where the money would come from or how I would get it done um, and and not take another job after I finished business school, I was able to really sort of take off with this. But it's really helpful because I, I have to wake up every morning and, and focus on raising money toward this cause that I and our team care about so fiercely. And there's a way of fundraising that's rooted in sort of scarcity, which is uh, you know being competitive with other nonprofit leaders or feeling like, oh, who's going to get that? donors money. And, and my orientation around it is so much that there is more money looking to have an impact than opportunities to have an impact that in many ways, when I'm talking to a Brazilian billionaire, as I did yesterday morning on Zoom, um, wow. the scarcer resource for him is opportunities to change young people's lives and to have a, an impact and leave a legacy. Um, it's not the dollars. And so it's, I think that operating from that place of like, there is money flowing in many directions. And my job is to sort of take it from where it's abundant and reinvest it into um, a model that we know is impactful. That's, that's what keeps me motivated. How do you get connected to a billionaire in Brazil? Oh my goodness. Many steps. The only thing anyone needs to learn from this episode, by the way, this is it. The very end. Oh my god. How do I get on a phone call with a Brazilian? It's a hard thing to say that 10 times fast. Brazilian billionaire. Brazilian billionaire. Yeah, but I've just written a piece um, actually about this experience I've had that we are all the same size on Zoom and the transformation in my approach to fundraising because it used to be, I mean, that meeting would have taken me years to set up and I would have been on a plane to Sao Paulo or Switzerland where he happened to be yesterday. Um, And all of the complexity in the lead up and, you know, getting dressed up and pretending to be perky, even if I'm exhausted or, you know, walking through the various layers of a fancy lobby and then meeting somebody on their time and their turf. There's something so humanizing about everybody getting the same small box on the two-dimensional screen and everybody being sort of in this moment of global transition where people have been way more vulnerable. And I I feel like I've been able to be more present and less performative in these conversations with, with donors. And it's just a reminder that people are people are people are people. And the power dynamics are often really in our own minds. I love that. Abby Fallick, thank you so much for joining. I look forward to raising my kids now. I really do. <laughs> Knowing that you're you're creating structures and programs and education to that they can plug into and that, you know, you're paving the way for so many more. I uh, can't wait to meet them. <laughs> have a great one. Thank you so much. Thanks to Abby Fallick for joining us. To learn more about her and Global Citizen Year, check out globalcitizenyear.org. Abby is also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'll be providing those links on the So Money Podcast website. And if you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe. If you're not already, leave a review, pass it along to a friend. It is the best way to support this show and be sure that we get all the iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify love topping the charts and making sure that people notice us. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day 
is so money. 